This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 14th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to take a look at some of the things that came down over this week. One of the things that didn't happen was that the spending bill didn't have any tax provisions in it. Turns out to get the spending bill through, uh, they ended up stripping out the tax provisions. So we don't have a tax bill to play with. And we don't know where that's going to put us in terms of getting one later if we are. But for right now, good news, we don't have a tax law to play with while we got everything else going. And otherwise, this week was relatively quiet. A couple of things happened. One I'm going to look at this week is the Department of Labor uh, put out a warning to 401k plan administrators kind of trying to tell them, wouldn't be a really good idea, we don't think, for you to offer employees in your 401k plan an investment option that includes digital assets. So we'll talk about what the department is concerned about here, what they're saying, and what that probably means that you're going to see in plans in that regard. Uh, we're also are going to talk about a taxpayer who attempted to claim a deduction for paying tuition for the shareholder's daughter's boyfriend to attend a training course for coding uh, didn't quite fly with the IRS in terms of the deduction, nor did it fly with the tax court. And finally, we'll talk about the IRS's announcement this week about their new about their program to deal with the backlog of returns and correspondence they have currently. Something I think we've all had to try to work with or work around as the case may be. So let's go ahead, though, and take a look now at this announcement from the Department of Labor. And this was their announcement, which is titled 401k Plan Investments in Cryptocurrencies. It's Department of Labor Compliance Assistant Release Number 2022-01, which issued on March the 10th. Now, despite having a title that talks about cryptocurrencies, it tells us pretty much immediately that this covers all kinds of digital assets, including those marketed as tokens, coins, crypto assets, or any derivative therein. So it's not as if, you know, just because you maybe get into investments in NFTs, that doesn't somehow take it outside of this category. So need to be aware of that with the department. And it turns out the department became aware that certain organizations are approaching plans and, you know, marketing to them, offering employees the right to invest their retirement funds into various cryptocurrency funds or cryptocurrency investments. And the department is somewhat concerned about this. The department starts out by reminding uh, plan fiduciaries that they have to act solely in the financial interests of plan participants and adhere to an exacting standard of professional care. Now, that's a fiduciary loyalty. It also means they have to basically exercise that fiduciary care on behalf of plan participants when choosing investment options to place in the plan. The clear implication of this is that you're going to have to decide whether or not it is a rational move for the employer or an acceptable move from a risk standpoint for employers, for employees, shall we say, to be investing their retirement funds in this type of an asset? Is it an appropriate sort of thing to have in your plan? And as a note, the failure to remove imprudent investment options is a breach of fiduciary duty. 
Now, just in case you aren't getting the hint, when they put out a special notice and the first thing they do is remind you of your duty to remove imprudent investment options, if you get the feeling the department may be strongly suggesting that they feel that cryptocurrencies are an imprudent investment option for a 401k plan, I would say you're reading the prevailing winds properly. That's how the department views this, and certainly they want to discourage it. They list specifically certain problems with such offerings. They talk about the fact that they are very, very speculative and very volatile investments of the side set. Probably the idea being with that level of volatility and that being that speculative of an investment, not sure it makes sense to be offering in what should be a relatively conservative investment uh, environment, shall we say, when you're talking about retirement funds, funds for a person's retirement. So they're kind of suggesting that's probably not. They also have challenges to make informed investment decisions because they're, as I said, uh, they can all too easily attract investments from inexpert plan participants with great expectations of high return and little appreciation of the risks the investments pose to their retirement investments. So they're saying they're very different. They're unusual. It's not something that participants have necessarily the background to make the choice of. There's also some custodial and record keeping concerns. Uh, cryptocurrencies are not held traditional plan uh, assets like that in trust or custodial accounts, not readily available, readily valued and available to pay benefits. Instead, they're lines of code in a digital wallet. And as they say, simply losing or forgetting a password can result in the loss of the assets forever. And other methods of holding can be valuable, can be vulnerable to hackers and thefts. What they're obviously talking about there is if you put it inside of an exchange, We've already had cases. Now, there haven't been any real recently, I can recall, but certainly last year we saw a number of cases and back in even 2020 uh, where certain exchanges uh, essentially had breaches where assets disappeared and where the cryptocurrency disappears. And one of the problems we've got with crypto is it's very difficult to trace once it gets outside. So the when they take it away, that becomes a problem in order to trace back and find those missing assets. It's also a currently a very odd regulatory environment, the IRS states, and so they think it becomes a significant issue with regulations changing constantly for analysis and stuff like that. So what the IRS, what the Department of Labor suggests is that these have to be these specific issues have to be very carefully considered by any plan fiduciary who is looking at approving this type of an investment or considering this type of investment offering in the plan. And as I say, they emphasize the negative. So obviously, they're hoping you get the idea. But just in case you didn't, this particular notice then, in the end, effectively threatens an investigatory program. It says, to quote from it, based on these and other concerns, the ESBA expects to conduct an investigating program aimed at plans that offer participant investments in cryptocurrencies and related products and to take appropriate action to protect the interests of plan participants and beneficiaries with regard with respect to these investments. 
Planned fiduciary is responsible for overseeing such investment options or allowing such investments through brokerage windows should expect to be questions about how they can square their actions with their duties of prudence and loyalty in light of the risk indicated earlier in this notice. So if you don't get the idea, yeah, they're, they're not really thrilled with this concept of having you invested in the cryptocurrencies. Now, does that mean it flat out is not legal? to have cryptocurrency investments in your qualified retirement plan? No, doesn't mean that. It stops short of saying that they would never be appropriate. But it does suggest a high level of risk that would be involved to a plan taking this on. First, the department is likely to scrutinize this a bit more if they understand that. I would also expect this may raise concerns for auditors of the plans. Uh, who, if they see that there, are going to be concerned about, you know, the prudence of this investment, do more look at that area. It also probably makes it riskier for the plan if the cryptocurrency investment goes bust and the employee claims that, well, they, you know, you should have been better educated, should have known more about what's going on, in essence, stating that despite the fact they may have been clamoring for it right now, when everything goes bust, they'll turn around and come against the fiduciaries of the plan, claiming that they breached their fiduciary duty by allowing them to put these funds in this investment. Because when things go bad, people tend to forget that they might have wanted to do something. And this particular notice, this particular uh, compliance assistance release, would probably be very, very useful in the hands of a plaintiff's attorney who is going to be questioning a fiduciary about, well, you knew the Department of Labor told you about how inappropriate these things were. Why, why, why did you put it on the list? My poor, innocent employee client believes that you had approved this and said it was good stuff and something they should put their money in. And you should have known better and not offered. You can just see where it's going to go. So just be aware. Now, I also had somebody comment when I posted about this on Twitter that they had already seen some IRA accounts and other things going down this path. The IRAs would be a little bit different because, again, they're not really going to be subject to this same type of fiduciary requirement. So in essence, the plan, you know, you are your own essentially person picking the investments. Now, we could go through the custodians. And the fact they offered this, but that's more the standard lawsuit against an organization for offering, you know, questionable investments or giving questionable advice and all those sorts of things. So I don't think this notice will impact the IRA accounts if IRA holders want to do this. I still think it probably is an issue that certainly I'd be skeptical about how smart it might be to get into crypto at this point in time. Uh, just because of a lot of uncertainty. And even if it is a good long-term investment, some of the things the department talks about here are real issues about you know how you can still, with what might be a good category, even if you buy that view of it, might still have a bad way to get in. And certainly there are things that can happen. So just be aware of that of these issues. And if you deal with any qualified retirement plans, you deal with individuals who are making in decisions about investments to offer in a qualified plan, you might want to have them make sure that they have taken a look at this Department of Labor compliance assistance release and figured out what, you know how they want to deal with it. 
Next up, we have the case of Sherman Sherwin Community Painters, Inc. versus Commissioner Tax Court Random Decision 2022-19. And this was issued on March the 9th. And this is kind of an interesting case. And it's a case that deals with a problem that we often run into. That is, a lot of our clients who own a small business, they, and especially if you follow along with some tax, with some tax TikToks or other kind of tax advice on social media, you'll quickly get clients who believe that, you know, everything is deductible with a trader business, that you could do that. And there is some, you know, we all know there is some shall we say, not truth to everything is deductible, but certainly there are some deductions that can be claimed for items that might not be, you know, that might, let's say, be, let's say they have both a business and a personal component to them. But unfortunately, clients tend to expand, so everything's there, as well as anything that they vaguely think may have a benefit to the business becomes a deductible expense. And this is where things fell apart in this case. This is a commercial painting company. And it was 100% owned by a husband and wife. And their daughter began dating an individual. And they met him, apparently got along well with him. And at some point, they became aware that he was interested in going into coding. Uh, Even though he had no experience in coding, he had nevertheless, you know, had an interest in it, and he knew of a course being offered by Northwestern University that he felt if he took and completed this training offered by Northwestern, that it would allow him to get started in coding. And apparently, the you know the parents heard this, and they decided, hey, this could be a good idea. In fact, we think that's great, and actually, we're even willing to pay for your tuition. So what ends up happening is the company, Sherwin Community Painters, Inc., which is a C-Corp, paid the tuition for the daughter's, you know, boyfriend. You know, we don't know if he's still her boyfriend or not. This case started in 2016. We know they met him in that capacity. I would assume that everything was at least good with the boyfriend and the, uh, and the couple at this point in time regardless of how things have developed in the future with the boyfriend of their daughter. In any event, he went, he got this training. Now, they, of course, had this agreement. Actually, they have no agreement in reality. He just paid for that. Now, after he finished the training, he did go ahead and, without getting paid anything else, he later came back in and he reworked their website, and he's been involved in maintaining that site. And the tax court agreed that at this point in time, probably the amount of work he's put in would have cost them, if they paid a third party, more than what they had paid for this tuition. But the court still had a little problem with this case. In fact, there are a couple of issues they had. Uh, The court notes that there are a number of problems here. Well, okay, we have an expense. And we had actual work eventually done for the business. But the first real problem was those two were never legally connected in any way, shape, or form. Now, while the, uh, you know, 
the you know, this person who they became aware of, right, and who they paid it for, might have felt some sort of moral obligation. You know, he felt gratitude. He feels like he should help them get their website together, having learned this and been able to, you know, gain this, gain this knowledge based on their paying the tuition. They nevertheless never really had any sort of agreement. He was not an employee of the company. They had no written, they had no agreement written or not written about what he was going to do. They simply said, you know, th th this is what happened. He was not an employee. They had no agreement that he'd perform services in exchange for the payment. Um, the company paid the tuition without expectation of return. And that's the big problem. They didn't show a business reason for the payment. Remember, under Section 162, generally ordinary and necessary business expenses are deductible. However, the court notes under Section 262 of the code, no deduction is allowed for a personal expense. And this was considered a personal expense of the taxpayers. It was considered to be, therefore, non-deductible. The key takeaway from this, as the court emphasizes, is primarily what was your intent? The intent when paying the tuition appears to have been, you know, personal relationship between the this couple and their daughter's boyfriend, this person that she had become, that she started dating. That became their motivation, it appears, for doing this. And one of the reasons why we could say that pretty clearly is in a normal business relationship, let's say that I was looking at, you know, getting some web, web work done for my CPA firm. Now, if I was just going to go get a person to do it, or maybe it says, yeah, I don't want to pay top dollar. You know, I, I think really what we need is to send somebody down, get some training and have them then be able to do this. I might enter into this sort of arrangement with a third party, although it seems unlikely. I'd be more likely to do it with my own employee. But let's say I enter into this relationship. I'm still going to get an agreement written where you agree I will pay for your tuition. You will then agree to provide me with the web, you know, redo my website and update things and maintain it for a period of time. And our agreement is going to be most likely that if you fail to fulfill that part of the agreement, that you will need to pay me back for the tuition, potentially plus some interest or whatever else that, you know, you're going to owe back to me because I need to make sure this work gets done. I don't just pay tuition to people thinking that, hey, someday they might come to work with me. I'm not going down and paying tuition for accounting students, you know, on this idea that, oh, they'll, they'll feel so grateful to me that they'll spend a year in tax season working for nothing. That's probably not going to happen. So the court's theory was pretty simple. This is an individually non-deductible expense. And that's really crucial because in this case, even though there was eventually work done for the business, which I'm sure the client believed, in this case, the taxpayer probably believed, well, that made it retroactively deductible because, see, we really got a benefit from this. But that's not really how this works out. The question becomes, did you expect to? What was the prime motivation behind paying the expense? Now, what was a little more interesting in this case, if you read the details of the case, read the case in depth, you'll also discover, though, the IRS managed to botch this in a way so that they weren't able to treat this as a basically constructive dividend from the C-Corp to the taxpayers or to the shareholders. 
which I found interesting because it seems kind of like that's how this would have come. However, if you actually read the case, it appears what really happened was that the service totally botched how they tried to argue. They tried to argue this loan to him was should have been considered a constructive dividend and then tried to justify that by saying, well, see, here's here's this payment of tuition. But as the court pointed out, the payment of tuition had been deducted as an expense. It had nothing to do with that due to from account. So the court said, well, the IRS hasn't really presented anything in this case for that purpose. So the court didn't go there. I would say in most cases, assuming the IRS competently argues the case and competently you know, writes up the exam and, you know, puts this in correctly and just simply says paying the personal expense would be considered a constructive dividend because there was no business purpose for it. It went to the benefit of them because, you know, it made their, it helped their relationship with this boyfriend of their daughter, that that, you know, there was a clear personal motivation here. So it was constructive dividend. I think that should have worked for the service. I think they just botched it from reading the opinion. So that's the issue. But I'm sure you've all had clients that want to deduct various things, you know, various expenses. They want to deduct their dog, all expenses for their dog, because, well, you know, they, they, they store some equipment on site at their home and their their dog, this chihuahua, is a great, uh, shall we say, guard dog. You have a little trouble with the chihuahua being a guard dog, but, you know, they'll, they'll go for something here. So, again. As I say, be, be sure you're aware of the limitations here. Not everything qualifies for a tax deduction. Uh, various tax experts, quote unquote, on TikTok notwithstanding. Finally, we're going to talk about something that got coverage in the press this week. And that was an IRS announcement. Treasury and the IRS announced an aggressive plan, as their title, to end pandemic inventory backlog this year. This was a press release. It was issued on March the 10th. Now, this press release starts by attempting to explain the current backlog. And like a lot of other IRS documents recently where the IRS is coming to criticism, uh, it is a bit defensive in tone in explaining why also we are in an election year. And obviously that plays into this as well because there's always going to be a blame game about why has this gone the way it has. Now, my own take is this blame can be spread a lot of places because it was pretty clear early in the pandemic that this was not going to go well. How in the world was the IRS going to deal with this? And it certainly appeared to not be dealt with very well uh, by, you know, what we then have the administration at that time. And when the new administration came in, they really didn't pick up and run with this either. Now, suddenly, after we had, you know, essentially two years, you know, under two different administrations, we had this ignored. Now suddenly it's like, oh yeah, we got this big problem. Maybe we should do something about it. So my own take is there's a lot of blame to go around. Now the IRS tells us that the agency has been chronically underfunded and they do give some stats that are kind of interesting, but that obviously is one of the protective, uh, that, that's kind of a protective shell and it's going to come from, not surprisingly, under the current uh, political situation with the current administration who had asked for a lot more IRS money and Congress being less apt to want to give it, uh, you know, they're going to do that and try to use this as a hammer of sorts. Okay, fine. But this shortfall of employees is something that was known and had been known back when the pandemic started. So again, to me, that's like, okay, fine. But 
it seems to me like nobody paid attention to this thing coming. And if anything, you just explained why it should have been easier to figure out that a big disaster was coming and we needed to do something about it. Then secondly, they do explain the nature of the pandemic. And this I find a little better supported, or at least, you know, it makes more sense to me. Because, yes, it is fair to say that Congress dumped a lot of programs on the IRS to deal with last year, just as they were having to pull people out. You know, they had to shut down the offices. They had the, you know, various shutdown of service centers due to the pandemic. All of those things happening, letters piling up, and Congress pretending as if there's an infinite supply of people that can handle all of these programs with, you know, with three different economic incentive payments, with special payments for advanced child care, you know, with all these programs being run through the IRS, change the unemployment status at the last second. There's been a lot of taxable status, shall we say. There was a lot that got dumped on the service in a time where they were having, you know, they were not able to be at the office, a pileup was coming, and Congress kind of ignored that problem. Now, can't feel too sorry for him because I always felt it was much more ridiculous that Congress somehow thought the Small Business Administration, which is a very small agency, could somehow manage to handle the flood that happened for the Paycheck Protection Program loans. But, you know, that's just Congress being unrealistic and, frankly, panicking in March of 2020 when all this got started. And then after having done all this once, every time they came back to revisit anything pandemic related, they kept going back to the same playbook because that playbook had passed before, ignoring the fact that it was probably making this worse. Now, the announcement, the big part of the announcement, probably the more serious one, is the IRS announced a hiring program. And this got a lot of coverage. They are planning to attempt to hire in the next year, uh, five, you know, in essence, uh, 10,000 new employees is what they're looking at here. So they have 5,000 open positions in the coming months to fill, and they want to add another 5,000 new hires. So in essence, 5,000 to fill open positions they have now, another 5,000 on top, and get this done in the coming year. So by this time next year, the theory is of 10,000 more people working at the IRS. Okay. Also, they note about their surge program. They are shifting 700 employees at Austin, Ogden, and Kansas City campuses uh, to process original returns. Uh, that's to get rid of that huge backlog that we've been told goes into the many, many millions of returns. It depends on who you talk to, how big the number is. Uh, th this suggests it's around 15 million uh, that they have a backlog of things to deal with. I know the taxpayer, the taxpayer advocates office has had higher numbers of just unprocessed returns. I think some of this is definitional issues, but they would have these 700 people handle that stuff, and that'll be on top of the uh, already 800 people that they had moved into surge positions to handle the backlog of correspondence. So in theory, we're going to hopefully see paper returns process faster. We'll have to note that. Hopefully, we're going to see the IRS actually get around to handling correspondence in a reasonable time, which, again, we'll have to see how that goes. And they noted that they were also, uh, as I said, they mandated overtime for certain employees. In this case, 6,000 employees are mandated, and overtime is available for another 10,000. Uh, to process overtime, they've so it's approved. 
they can actually get the overtime pay and get paid for the work, for doing work to catch up at the campuses. And they're also uh, doing night shifts and around-the-clock work trying to catch things up based on these overtime items. Now, the other issue is the IRS then gives some information, uh, finally, that they're looking at hiring contractors to see if some of this could be solved by having contractors come in to take over some of these issues. The rest of the notice talks mainly about things the service is doing to tell you how well things are going. But there are some there is some information here that probably you or your clients should be aware of. Uh, they do talk first about a lot of problems occur, correspondence occurs because there are errors on returns, and they talk about ways they're trying to help reduce those errors. Unfortunately, they talked about the uh, sending the letters out about the amounts for the uh, economic incentive payments and advanced child tax credits. As we know, that has not gone totally smoothly. I'm not sure that's helping, but rather maybe hurting matters in that regard. But nevertheless, they put this out. They also tell us that they want to emphasize there is online help, and I've seen them pushing that more heavily, at least in social media, of suggesting don't call the IRS, you know, go online. We have online systems to help you. So talking about those issues for getting online payment agreements, requesting transcripts, uh, requesting identity protection pins, and updating personal information. You know, in this case, they're talking about accessing those accounts. They also talk about increasing the number of in-person programs they've had recently, opening up some offices, uh, including weekends for hours and weekends to have people come in. And finally, they, they discuss about uh, phone assistance. They start. They talk about the added callback option. The problem with that, of course, is that you have to get in first before you can leave your number for callback. But I have heard from people that have had that work. So certainly it's, it's something that's there. So we have those in place. Finally, the IRS also explains some of the technology issues they're using. They discuss the fact that they have used, they've automated some error corrections from, you know, where a 1040 is filed that has some sorts of errors that in the past used to have to be handled by a person. They've taken automation to solve some of those issues in that regard. They also, as a note, stopped issuing notices to taxpayers. You know, that suspended notice program we talked about a few weeks ago. They want to remind you about that. And they also have started, this was also announced here recently, that they've actually started adding more and more automated systems on the phone or automated, pro, automated systems where you can get in and get information by calling via phone, voice recognition, other sort of structures. So they're working on that. Now, of course, as I said, the statement has a lot in it that talks about how the IRS, you know, how, you know, you shouldn't be that upset at them, how they've really tried to work hard at this and how they've been, you know, bludgeoned and starved for funds by Congress, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that is the sort of refrain we've heard quite a bit from them this year. I'm not sure it really helps them uh, in relations, but OK, they like to do that. So they do. But there are some things in here that tells you at least some of what they're doing. And certainly, if you aren't aware of some of the resources they mentioned, uh, you should probably make sure you're aware of using that. Because right now, as I say, if I can find a way to avoid calling the IRS, I'm going to try to make that work. Because I know what a hassle it's going to be to call the IRS and try to get into that line. So obviously, that's something that we work on. Well, hopefully you've got everything ready. You're ready to file your extension, you know, I guess extensions or the uh, 
where the flow through returns by Tuesday. So hopefully that's together. That means now we turn our attention to the last month of tax season. And apparently this year it will be the last month of tax season. We'll, we'll you know, hope, I guess. Well, some people may not be hoping. Some people may want to see the tax season extended again. But I know a lot of people who don't. That was the fight last year as well. Uh, but this year we're hearing no rumblings whatsoever at this point that the IRS plans to extend the tax season. So I don't think it, I think this year, April 18th will really be when everything ends. So we'll have that get that ready to go. Again, as always, I do uh, add, if you have any questions or comments, you can email me Ed Zollers at currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. I also do monitor the Connect sites for the Arizona Society, New Jersey Society, uh, Minnesota Society, Illinois Society, and Washington Society CPAs. And I take a look at the discussion board for the Idaho Society uh, to see any questions or issues that go there. I will be looking to see what happens this week in terms of any IRS developments and other issues. We'll see if anything happens. We'll see if you get any movement toward a tax bill coming out of Congress now that they've handled the spending bill. So we'll take a look and see what goes on there. If anything happens, we'll come back here next week, talk to you about what goes on, probably at least talk to you about whatever may come up next week, even if it's quite as quiet as this week. So everything major, but we'll talk to you what's there. And hopefully, as I said, you're enjoying the rest of your tax season as much as one can enjoy tax season. And we'll see you back here next week for more current federal tax developments.